This is a project of the Mashup Americans. Welcome to Grief Collected, where we explore how grief moves through our bodies, our families, and our communities, and why we need to feel it all in order to transform our future. Today, we're talking to the writer, organizer, and healer, Adrienne Marie Brown, about emerging from our collective grief and about creating our future together. Hey, I'm Amy Choi. And I'm Rebecca Lair, and we are the Mashup Americans. Uh, this is the very last episode of the series. Very nice trumpet sounds. You know, you build skills over time, (laughs) and that's one of them. It's been a long time in the making, this series, and also just like, that's me snapping, happens so fast. It happens so fast. It's like two years of work, and all of a sudden we're here. But you know, okay, so also, what is time? What is time? What (laughs) Kronos, Kairos, we learned all about it. Well, so, you know, reflecting on it, the vision of this series was that we could try and pinpoint grief, define it a little bit, this like enormous, overwhelming and profound thing that happens in all of our lives and try and capture it somehow, like maybe like put some boundaries around it. Because it's big. It's very, very big. And we know that it's 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 coming for all of us. Mm. But, you know, and because we're mashups, part of our goal of the series also was just to understand how much of this came from our roots, like came from our families. We wanted to see what the roots of grief could be in our families, in our communities, and really think about how that plays out just like in our lives, in our bodies, and as we shape the next generations. Um well, you know, especially also, I think the desperate need to figure out literally what is happening to my body, our bodies. Mm-hmm. Mm. Bodies, bodies keeping them scores. Oh, they are keeping the scores. As we like to say, <laughs> I would like to know who wins. I'm tired of the scorekeeping. I would like an end to this game. <laughs> Me versus body. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, we didn't really talk very specifically in this series about our own personal grief experiences and tragedies um it wasn't what we were looking for here today and through this series but each one of our experiences have informed the questions we had and why we wanted to understand grief better and how it impacts us and how it impacts our community and i have found this to be so transformative and so empowering it it has felt empowering to understand my experiences better now like in perspective that i is it i think that is the theme <laughs> right perspective is that every one of these conversations and then my experience with it and i don't want to speak for you has been about perspective whether it's how we are a small part of larger communities, how we are only one in many generations of family and culture about how grief is impacting so many people all the time. Each one of those gives a different layer of perspective. Yeah. It's 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 a cubist dream. <laughs> yeah. And I think a cubist dream. We've had Hegelian dialectics. I also think that just the, the perspective... Each of those layers to me also adds a layer of like kind of like a holding 
um, of community because I think the thing about grief that as I have experienced it is that it's been so and it can be so profoundly lonely. Like when you're really in the throes of it, it's almost impossible to imagine that anybody else has ever felt as bad as you are feeling in that moment. And I think just mathematically knowing that many, many, many people have is is comforting. And it's not in like a misery love comforts kind of way, but just knowing that this is, that grief is also a tradition. That like grief as love is something that is deeply embedded in us that is elemental to being a human being. And I think that that is something that has led us to like this precipice, what feels like, okay, so now we have all these layers. We, we are, we are like gaining perspective. We can see how communities are impacted for the better as we metabolize grief and we can push for restoration and so I think, you know, the natural question for us becomes like, okay, well, then what's next? And for us, it feels like, okay, well, so we know what's next is creating new waves of seeing each other in our grief and creating new rituals, like a new grief culture, and hopefully a new overall culture that is more empathetic and more just and more happy and more honest and more joyful, because we've been able to metabolize our grief. And like, we know the very best part of the whole American experiment is that we can continue to transform. So in landing on this idea of building and future building and harnessing the power of our imaginations, we brought into this conversation the absolute best person we can think of to imagine our futures with, which is Adrian Marie Brown. Adrian Marie Brown. There's the song. It's my Adrian. You know, it's just there. It's there. It's in my heart, a fluttering. (laughs) Adrienne Marie Brown is a writer, musician, podcaster, organizer, healer. She's basically all the important things. She is the founder of the Emergent Strategy Ideation Institute and author of several books, including Emergent Strategy and Pleasure Activism. She has been thinking so much about grief and in 2021 published the Afrofuturist novella Grievers, which is set in Detroit. It's about a young Black woman, Dune, who is navigating an apocalyptic event of grief and love and the life and death of our cities and our communities. The next book in the Grievers trilogy, Maroons, will come out in January 2023. And for many people on social media very much us included, Adrian Marie Brown is also a meme lord. Her daily roundup of memes are so funny and sharp and bring us endless delight. So more on that soon. Yay, Adrian! I would love to just launch right in. I'm not going to give you like warm-up questions, Adrian. Okay, There's not going to be that. Let's go straight to the point. Get into it. But one <laughs> of the things that I think is deep in your work and also what I think we have been really pushing towards and challenging mm. ourselves with in this project has been how does grief reveal truth and what truths are revealed by grief? Because I think... You know, as much as as we all know, grief is a part of life. Grief is something that runs parallel to joy. It's also just like it's so hard. Yeah. <laughs> it's like incredibly painful. Yes. Even the healthiest of griefs, like, is that so? Yeah. Like, what 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 do we get from it? I hate to be so American, be like this is a trade, but like, yeah. But what happens? Well, you know, I've I've been writing a lot about grief and thinking about it a lot, and I have landed in 
like grief really shows us how we love and what we love. Like grief is love mm. in just a new form, right? It's like I loved something or someone or some place and I've lost that person or that I have to leave that place or that place no longer exists or that structure, that organization, that relationship is done. And so it's almost like having the clear water of love and then injecting like blue paint into it or, you know, blue coloring. It's just like, it's that same thing flowing through us, but now it's tinged with this um, sadness, this loss, this other shape. And what I always find is, you know, there's things that I think I care about a lot or I think I'm supposed to care about a lot. And when change comes, it doesn't impact me that much. And I can tell like, oh, mm. like that one didn't root all the way down into me. And then mm. there's other things where I'll be like, I'm so mad at this person. I don't even care about them at all and whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> or, you know, family members like this person's so racist and I'm not going to talk to them. And, you know, just stuff like that that I'm like, Ugh, I've set a boundary and and then some loss happens or they go through something and, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, there's the grief. And the grief was like, even with your rage, you still love this person. There's still a ton of longing that you have. And I think a lot of us experience this, particularly intergenerationally, right? Where we're like, I'm differentiating myself from the lineage that came before me, but there's still such a tender grief-filled place for those people exactly as they are also. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think grief gives us all of those gifts. And then I also think each time we grieve, we're strengthening a muscle of being able to be with loss and be with change, which is actually a fundamental necessity for those of us who are truly revolutionary in the sense of like, we want to revolve into a different society, evolve into a different society, grow into a different way of being in relationship to each other. There's so much of how we currently live that we will have to grieve if we're actually going to to land in a new way of being. So all these small griefs prepare us for this larger collective transformation that we need to go through if we're going to be compatible with this earth. Oh God, I have so many questions. I have Great. so many follow You started hard, questions. so I started hard. That Amy. <laughs> Well, I know that Rebecca <laughs> has been obsessing, rightfully so, over this question about the systems and how we grieve systems. Yeah. But I do want to say I so appreciate the way that you frame grief not just as about the death of a person, which it oh, so yeah. is, but that it's about change and it's about loss of a relationship to, and again, it doesn't have to be as a person, but to a, a place or yeah. to a system or to a structure. I think that was something that was so striking about grievers you know, especially later on in the book, and there will be spoilers, but as Dune is building her city, it's <laughs> yeah. just, you can see the grief is seeping into Detroit and she's trying to hold on or, or, or recreate the city yes. that she loves. Yes. But when she walks around, she's also watching not just the people die, but the whole place, the, place. the whole idea of what Detroit is and what her family was trying to create is all dying. That's right. And in my reading of it, that loss is the one that feels like the most insurmountable, like the most yeah. tsunami of loss is just yeah. the idea of the whole thing. But you know, so there's there's layers of what happens, right? I, I think that displaced peoples understand this very deeply, that it's it's like if you lose someone, right? If your grandmother passes away, that's one immense grief. And it's something really difficult to hold and to carry and you carry it your whole life. But if you 
can't go back to where you were with her, right? Mm -hmm. You can't sit under the tree that y'all sat under together. You can never go back into her home because it's been flooded or destroyed or someone's occupying it or -hmm. something else, you know, um, that it, it compounds this grief, right? It's like, I can't go back to the place. I know I can't go back to the time. I can't go back to the person. The devastation becomes more and more complex. Mm. And with grievers, I wanted to show something that has happened in Detroit, which is there's this ebb and flow of humans, right? And so the humans Mm. are the bloodline of the city. That's what's flowing through a city that makes it what it is. And so you know this about the cities that you love, right? If New Orleans was empty, it wouldn't be New Orleans. If Detroit is empty, it's not Detroit, but it's something. And so as it empties out, she's like, there's still something alive. There's some presence here. And Mm. I keep trying to find ways to write about the earth itself and places and the way that I think they have a sentience too. And, you know, not to go overboard or not to try to anthropomorphize them, but just to be like, Detroit also has a a sensibility of wanting to be alive and, and wanting people and wanting to be a safe place for people to, to live and have their children and everything. So I feel like that spark, you know, Dune is available for it. I think one of the things I really like about her is she's not necessarily setting out to do stuff, but she's giving way to what grief wants to do. And I, I think there's some clues in there for how I believe we should approach grief as ritual and practice. It's like, when we lose something, we need to give ourselves space to drift and to follow new impulses and to follow what our grief wants to do because it doesn't always look, it rarely is actually, I'm just sitting and crying somewhere. Right. Mm-hmm. Like when I'm grieving, it's, you know, that is part of it. But there's also like, I'm obsessively cleaning my home mm. um, and I am finding old pieces of that person and, and looking at them and reviewing them and remembering and scrolling through my phone, trying to numb myself. Like there's so many layers to it. And I wanted to kind of invite and explore and give more permission for all of that. Yeah. I love that. One of the things that um, Linda Ty had said to us about ancestral grief that relates so much to what you're saying about being displaced in the kind of levels of mourning that you might Mm do is just that also, um, you know, some of it can be so physical. Like I've visited, for example, like my grandfather's grave in Korea with my mom, but she can't, I, and I didn't know him, but I can grieve more fully for him than she can. Like it was something that she immigrated in. What do you mean when you say that? That I How could, are you like, grieving more? Feel that there is a loss, and I can see the loss that my mother has yeah. for him, but she cannot express it or allow it into her life. And Linda said something that was just like, "Oh, because mm-hmm. if you have to survive, you can't leave room for grief. Mm-hmm. Like that, that grief is something that you can. It's it's also in some ways a." Um, she didn't say this. I'm saying this. But like, <laughs> uh, it's like a gift, as you say, like a privilege. Sometimes yeah. you just have to like exactly. completely shut it out in order to just like get through. And right. I think that idea of drifting to allow yourself that seems like a new, seems very Yeah, or new old, right? Like I, yes. I always go look and I'm like, oh, there's ancient cultural practices around this where people would be like, oh, like, 
now I'm just going to sit here and tear my clothes and just be in this moment for a long time. I'm going to wear black for an entire year. I'm going to do like there used to be different practices where it was held for much longer. But, you know, I ask you that about your mother, because I also think I deeply agree with that. Survival makes us push stuff down. Right. But somatic study and embodiment study is like the pushing it down doesn't mean it doesn't happen and it Mm. doesn't mean it's not felt, but it's like, in a sometimes subconscious or even, you know, kind of almost a subterranean place in us. And if we are allowed to soften, there's a melting, a softening, a being held that can allow stuff to surface and and move out. But if it doesn't, it kind of becomes our shape. And Mm. so I think we have like generations of people where it's like, oh, you know, my parents are so tough or my parents are so, you know, rigid or they're so disciplined or that, you know, there's other things and I'm like, that's all grief too, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And the, it's like the way that they process the grief is to become this exacting thing, right? And you know, I see it in in my own family where I'm like, oh, coming out of the conditions of of black poverty, there's a commitment to discipline in my family and to rigidity and order and like doing things correctly and you know doing things according to the law and the rule. And I'm like. Yeah, <laughs> like it's a, it's like that's a survival shape, but it's also like this is how you survive a place that doesn't want you to live. You don't give anything, you know. You don't give anything. You don't take the risk of losing anyone else. We have to we have to keep ourselves together. And, well, you talk about that yeah. in in um in the intro to pleasure activism, just like your own shape. Yeah. That you're like I could either have been a nun or like <laughs> exactly. Well, and I think I'm part of this, and I think we are. You know, this I think generationally, those of us who are. 40s, 50s, and younger, right? I I think there's this generational thing that's happened where there's like, okay, part of me could be a monk or a nun. And I was just talking about this with a dear friend where we were like, yeah, I'm like, put me in a bare room and all I can do is meditate and, you know, write down my thoughts and like be, you know, just drink water. (laughs) Like, I'm like, something about that really, really works for me. And there's ways that I can go into that space. But then there's also this pleasure goddess wild creature that is reemerging in part because of all the discipline in part because of all the sacrifices that the generations before me made Mm. um that they're like i want to create a space where you don't have to struggle like this and so having not had to struggle the way that they did there's this wild animal (laughs) that has aroused itself within me that from very young i was like i want pleasure i want to feel that feels good i'm following that this is interesting i'm following this and my life has been you know, I take these breaks and I'll have this more aesthetic lifestyle for a while. And now I know that it's also part of the pleasure for me. There's a Mm. simplicity pleasure. And then there's a lush, um, abundant garden. Meme Lord Lord pleasure. And then there's the meme Lord pleasure, which is like a third (laughs) secret way. (laughs) I mean, that's been a really unexpected, I have to say it's like, and that's kind of come out of my grief also. So the Mm. meme practice emerged over COVID where I kept trying to figure out joy, just like how do we Mm. just give ourselves a little respite when we know now that everyone is mourning, everyone is in some grief over either actual people that they lost to COVID or pathways that they lost to COVID Mm. relationships that, you know, like I went through a breakup this year that, you know, a lot, there's a lot of factors to it, but part of it is that it was a COVID defined relationship. And that was a really Mm -hmm. challenging 
conditioned to try to be in and in love and, and newly in love in, right? But then there's also, yeah, I meet people regularly who are like, yeah, my whole life path was truncated and diverted because of this. I, I'm supposed to be mm. living a different, you know, we can grieve our parallel lives, but mm. there's so much of that happening. And I think there's also the sadness of just watching systems that could choose to protect you and have all the resources needed to protect you say they're not going to. And as someone with, you know, disabilities and conditions and, you know, just having to navigate the world and be like, wow, I live in this place that is so resourced and so careless and, you know, Mm. sees me as collateral damage. I knew that most of my growing up life, I've known that, but this feels like a, this unveiling has been so much sharper than I expected. And the memes have been kind of my (laughs) way of being like, hey, (laughs) y'all, at least can we laugh about this? And, you know, some of them are quite edgy, you know, so I find that I can allow the sharpest edge of my humor in that way, in a way that I might not otherwise do. Uh, <laughs> and a lot of people meet me there. <laughs> oh, I'm holding I mean, my I body could... so tight right now. Do you see what I'm doing? I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> she's saying mm-hmm. it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so we've been talking about structural grieving, and I think you did mm. such a beautiful description of this period of time where we're like losing a certain path that you might go down that you thought yeah. you would. Yeah. Or even for us, we have a sense of like, loss of naivete almost like mm. uh, uh, mm-hmm. like certain things I mean obviously the Trump era everything is mm-hmm. unveiled so much but there's loss of like as first generation Americans who model minorities you know we were uh-huh. we were given a certain path or and a lot of sacrifice had. happened in order for you to have this path yes yeah. and then it looks different and yeah. Before we put judgment on what that difference is, good or bad, it's a big loss for what we understood it would be. Yeah. And I think one of the things we're asking is, what does it mean to you to be grieving a way of being or structures, even ones that didn't serve us, Mm. right? You've talked about grieving capitalism because- yeah. You know, even though this is bad, it is what we know. Like, well, you know what I say about it too? I'll be like, capitalism is a heartbreaker. Right? Yeah. And so it's like grieving something that was like, you know, first date was great. Right. I was like, wait, I'm going to have a house and a fence and a car. And, a, <laughs> you know, I, if I just work hard, like I can have all the things. And, you know, I still, every time I leave the country, talk to other people and they're, they're still like, yeah, that dream is breaking people's hearts who'll never get to come here. But they're they're convinced that if I only could come to the US, then I would I would be this I would have this success story. And I'm like, mm. you know, it's a it's um it's a heartbreaker. And I've been going through this grief process because I'm like, once you realize like not only does it not work for the majority of people, or it never the dream doesn't actually manifest into all the things, but it's a dream that lives on top of a nightmare. You know, mm. like we always talk about these systems that live on top of other systems. So Walida, Imarisha, and I, who we did Octavia's Brood together, we always talked about it as there's a utopia. If there's a utopia, it's living on top of a dystopia. Mm-hmm. Like in order for utopia to exist, there's almost always someone living in a dystopia who's paying the price for that, mm. um, or doing the labor, right? Off, off screen, off camera, off site. And so when you realize that about capitalism, I think there's a, there's a, political grief and there's a life grief that's like, oh, 
there's not some path where I just have abundance and no one else, you know, I don't have to think about, um, I don't have to worry about other people's suffering. Mm-hmm. And then I think the other part of capitalism that's such a trick is the people who are extremely wealthy, where you would think that they would be happy, are also severely depressed, suicidal, isolated, angry. Um, like there's a, a great emptiness, right? Because they've been having an abundance of something that doesn't actually nourish you. Mm. And it's very, that can be very isolating. So I've really been thinking about grieving capitalism allows us to make way for new economic experiments. And I think the sooner we can do that, the better, you know, for me to be like, I live inside of a dying capitalist world. I am a post-capitalist. I'm, I'm trying to think beyond it. Um, and a visual that helps me a lot is, have y'all been to the Grand Canyon? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, in the Grand Canyon, you stand there and you can see these layers and layers and layers and layers and layers and layers and layers of the past. And each of those is like, oh, that was like 300 years, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. is like now a, a gorgeous pink line along the the facade of this canyon. And I'm like, capitalism one day will be like that. It'll be a set of lines and colors. And that's what will be left of that system. And life will go on and earth will go on, right? In the same way it survived dinosaurs, it survived asteroids, it survived other things. And my hope is that humans will have adapted and we can look at that line and be like, ah, that was then, (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But we've got a, a, a ways to go. I think one of our questions has been like, part of the why has been like, we feel this, impulse we we know it in our bones that mm-hmm. honoring our grief is is essential to us as humans and to yeah. our souls and also to our futures yeah and i just would love to hear from you you know and uh, as a i love mm-hmm. this idea of like being a post is that mm-hmm. like what does honoring our grief have to do with our future like why why must we go through this process rather than yeah. just like doing well one thing i mean i will say this I'm always trying to learn from nature. Like I'm always looking at the earth and being like, how do you do it? Because we are earthlings. (laughs) So tell us how you do stuff. And one is I look at volcanoes, right? So I think of grief, you know, it's like the volcano letting out this little like, here's the lava flow. Here's a lava flow. This is the overflow. There's a little too much. I've got to let it go. And like, that's how I try to approach my grief is like when the tears come, I cry them. When I remember someone, I light the candle. Like I, I, I let the grief be present when it comes because if I don't, if I try to bottle it up, that pressure is going to build up inside me and it'll blow, right? And I think we see this in so many of our parents and grandparents who have strokes and aneurysms and heart disease and cancers. Mm-hmm. There's so much that's from built up repressed emotion in the individual system, the family system, the collective system. Most of us in our families we have the person who takes the blow for the the whole family, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're the one who they they basically hold the emotional content, and they either hold it quietly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're all like, raise your hand. <laughs> we, they either hold it quiet with quiet resentment, right? So a lot of us are like, oh, why is that person so angry all the time, or why are they so resentful, or why are they so passive aggressive? And it's like they're probably sitting on a mother load of repressed emotions and Mm -hmm. they're afraid that if I truly open my mouth, I will blow up this whole thing and block out the sun. So that's part of it. It's like to have a future, we have to actually learn how to 
how to release what we can when we can so we don't create this necessary crisis, right? Mm. But I also think that for me, grief is something that's like also a mark of survival, right? That's like, I'm still alive. I'm still here. I can learn from this grief, right? I'm like, the people in my family who've had heart attacks, I'm like, even as I grieve for them, I also am internalizing like, oh, I need to attend to my heart, right? If I want to have a future that's longer than the future of my grandmother and great-grandmother and great-great-grandmother who all had heart disease that killed them, then I have to attend to my heart, right? That's really important data for trying Mm. to create a future. And then the patterns that create grief, collective grief. So a moment like this COVID, um, COVID COVID-19 crisis we can look at it both for like, what did we learn over this year, this, this period of time? Which mm. nations actually quarantined? Which nations actually attended to their citizens? Mm. Which nations kept their people safe? Which nations didn't? Who, who put the economy before the people? Um, how did we keep ourselves alive in spite of that? How did those of us with disabilities survive this time? All of that is remarkably useful data because COVID-19 is the climate crisis. It is the capitalism crisis. It's all the crises. It's like anything that requires us to have a collective mindfulness, Mm. we can see how we handle collective mindfulness, right, in this moment. And we can be like, okay, currently our government doesn't make good decisions when it comes to this stuff, right? And if it doesn't make good decisions when it comes to this stuff, we can't rely on them. So how do we rely on each other? Mm -hmm. And the emergence of huge mutual aid networks has been really fortifying (laughs) to me to to watch and be like, okay, I always say community is the answer, right? I think community is always the answer. So to me, grief teaches me I need to be in community, both to be held for the acute grief and to be able to adapt together so that we can avoid unnecessary grief. I don't mind carrying the grief that's like inevitable in my life. I feel a lot of resentment when I'm being given, I'm like, this is just extra. This is just bonus <laughs> unnecessary struggle <laughs> that I did not need or ask for um, and that, that none of us deserve, right? We live in a miraculous world. And I think there's supposed to be a balance between miracle and grief that is off right now. You know, in, you just spoke about collective grief. Yeah. And some of the stuff that we're learning from what we're observing about what's not happening for yeah. example, I'd love to talk a little bit about what it does look like right now here mm-hmm. and and then kind of what can it look like? You're so inspiring in this idea of dreaming and imagination mm-hmm. and not being caught in what it it always what it is or has been, although yeah. we have to process that and that's part of what we're doing here. Yeah. But is what it can it be? And so that's a big set of two questions here, but like have there yeah. ever been good collective grieving experiences or not good um, ones that we think served us in the yeah. U.S. or are there other places that you've seen it do really well, even in the COVID-19 crisis as an example? Yeah. I mean, I think there's tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of beautiful practices of collective grief. And mm. one that I will uplift that always moves me is the second line rituals in New Orleans. Like every time I'm in New Orleans, if I see a second line going by, whoever it is that they're grieving for, I go join. (laughs) I'm just like, I love this way of being with others and just being like, 
this life has been lived and we will dance it down to the grave and we will dance it down the street and um and we will wear our most our finest clothing and we will have our parasols and you know the band will march and the the Mardi Gras Indians will dance i mean like there's just it it's taking it and saying actually the end of a life can also be a celebration mm-hmm. and our grief can be laughing in the stories that we're telling about our our loved one right like that's such a different approach and I've seen homegoing ceremonies like that, which were, you know, it's like, yes, we're crying and yes, we we feel sadness, but also like, wasn't this person amazing and hilarious? And do you remember when they did this ridiculous thing? I used to live right by the Barclays Center and DMX's yes, yes. homegoing was the best thing that had the, the trucks it, and the yes. red and the yes. everything. Right? It's just like, actually, everybody come out. You know, I remember when Biggie Smalls, like, there's just moments in historically where in my life where I'm like, I remember this. Mm-hmm. I also want to say, like, I was in New York right after 9-11 and uh, at 9-11, like I was on 6th Avenue. And then I remember those weeks where there was this, before things went to terror, right? Before everybody was like, war, there was this quiet moment mm-hmm. of everyone looking at each other with like this softness in our eyes. And there were pictures of our dead on the walls in the subway. There were pictures of who was missing. And there was just this, it was a very different energy. There was no celebration. It was pure shock. But there was such a sense of of like, I know you're grieving and we're all grieving what we thought New York was and that skyline and the people and all of it were grieving. And so I look at that and I'm like, I know I've been a part of grief that felt like collective and held and tender and beautiful and celebratory. And during COVID-19, something I, I was really appreciative of, which wasn't quite a grief practice, but adjacent was there was a period of time um, where people would come out at seven o'clock at night and bang on, yeah. Mm-hmm. Pots and pans and make a great noise to honor all the doctors and nurses who were going in to these COVID wards and really holding the front line of death there because at mm-hmm. that point it was like mostly people were by the time they were getting to the hospital, they weren't making it. And I just I was like, that is such a moving practice. And what you also saw there was the the brevity of our American attention span and the mm. brevity of our American capacity to to be in that tender, hard place, right? Mm. Part of why we've moved on, there's the economic reasons and all of that, but it's also like our attention span for being able to be in common practice is too low for the circumstances we're in. So right now, the death numbers have not dropped. So there's no reason to say, the pandemic is over, we're fine, everybody stop wearing your mask. But the practices are changing because we cannot, we don't have the sustenance to stay in the practice, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And- that feels, you know, like that's what I'm paying attention to in my own life. I'm like, yeah, I also struggle with practicing something more than a few months at a time. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I'm like, yes. I got my yoga practice and it's going really well. And now I fell off. Now I'm swimming practice and it's going really well. And I fell off. So I'm. it's making me really attend to like, oh, how do I increase my capacity, my stamina for practice? Hmm. How do I increase my stamina for change? How do I increase my stamina for for doing things that are for the collective good rather than just individual good? Mm. Um, those feel like some of the lessons that turn me. So when I dream and imagine, now we go there, I would love for a second line, a collective second line type practice to be like a common practice for how we grieve or the homegoing practice, which is just like, 
let's cook and make a celebration and honor this person. I would also love, you know, (laughs) in my dream, dream world, it's like every year we would sit down and be like, what have we learned from our dead and our dying this year? Mm -hmm. What have we learned, right? What are we learning about the patterns of health and community and safety and um, distribution of, of material goods? What are we learning about ourselves from who's dying? Because if we sat that way with COVID, it would be like, oh, here's the adjustments we need to make in our economy, in our society, how medicine gets distributed, how information gets distributed. We can't indulge people who are saying things that aren't true in the public sphere. We have to tighten up. Like It's so clear. There's these patterns and lessons that we would be like, oh, let's learn those so that our dead become the teachers that help us avoid these patterns. So that to me, you know, when I when I think about oh, in the future, it'd be something that like we honor, that we we live in such a way that we're like, okay, if this death is unnatural, let's make it impossible. <laughs> you know, yeah. part of what I'm writing right now is really about how death can be the way we return to nature, right? Mm-hmm. Like ashes to ashes, dust to dust. What does that really mean? And what would it look like to get to choose? Like, I want to be a mushroom. I want to be an oak tree. I want to go into you know like. Where do you want to go? Which part of nature do you want to return to? And that that's the dying process. It's like, that's part of your ritual. Okay, it's almost time. I'm going to go to the ocean, <laughs> right? Which, so, what, where, what do you want to be a mushroom? I mean, I kind of want to do all of it. So I'm like, cut me up. And <laughs> no, but, <laughs> one here, know, one there. I really, really, really love the idea of being like fed into a mycelial network. Mm-hmm. Um that because then I know that like that's going to feed a whole area, right? It'll feed the tree. It'll nourish everything around. Um, so I, I love that idea. But I'm also like an ocean being, like a mer person. So um, I think it'll at least have to be a half and half situation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you know, I mean, I think there's also we are kind of repelled by so much of our nature. Mm-hmm. Right, like we're repelled by our bodies. We want to control our bodies. We live in a society that's always trying to control our wildness. And I do feel like death, in that way, is a is a freedom path. As like you, you know, while I was in this body, you could exert different kinds of control over me, and maybe I could, you know, fight back or maybe not. But once once I'm gone, you know, it's, there's also freedom to that. It's just like I lived this full life in this container. Now I'm uncontained. And whatever you believe happens after that, there's a freedom in it too. And so I always try to hold that, you know, that like grieving is for those of us who stay, but we have no idea what's happening for the person who's gone. And they might be ecstatic. They might be having a bomb time or they might just be like, there's nothing here. I'm just, you know, it's just, I'm gone. It's cool. (laughs) You know, whatever. Right. So my belief is that the body is an experience of separateness. And then we return to something that is much more connective and, and so in that way, I'm like, yeah, like liberate me back into the nature, liberate me back into this, the whole. And even the idea that I could control like which nature I go to is kind of laughable in that perspective, right? That's like, girl, you're just going to be a part of nature. Like <laughs> you're not in charge. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the themes I'm hearing a lot in here is in your work is about perspective and time. Right. right. Like where we sit in time. And Mm -hmm. also there's so much more to time than this moment. Exactly. I think something about the American 
experiment makes that very challenging to wrap our heads around. We're like, this is, yeah. oh, 250 years. And then you literally leave here and go anywhere. And yes. they're like, this stupid store is 500 years old. Exactly. Or this thing <laughs> is 1,000 years old. Or this is 5,000 right. years old. That piece on time, I think that's almost all of it, right? <laughs> is there's a way that it's like, Grief is a marker of time. Grief is a, in relationship to the life that someone lived in a certain time. And also time for me gives me the humility to be like, I'm probably going to be forgotten. Like most mm -hmm. of us live and then we're briefly remembered by the people who loved and knew us and then we're forgotten. And there's very few people whose names actually like last in history compared to the amount of people who live. And you don't get to control the narrative of your time. Mm -hmm. You don't get to control the narrative of the future. There's just so much that you're not in charge of other than living your life well. And for me, that gives me a little peace. That's like, even if I seem to be so famous or having a high moment of visibility or, you know, everyone's worried about what I'm doing or whatever, there's something about this, like, mostly you're going to be forgotten. So do work that's going to matter, contribute to ideas that are going to matter and let that be the way that you continue in the world. Like I know Audre Lorde's name, but I don't know all the black feminists who flowed into her consciousness or awareness. Right. And yeah, I don't know. There's just something about that. Like <laughs> that idea of like, Oh, like the grief, even those who grieve me the most intensely, that'll be relatively brief in the grand yeah. scheme of human life. And, and then we'll keep moving and I will have been loved. So loved. Mm -hmm. Rebecca's going to cry. I already cried. So I will share that <laughs> in the two weeks of quiet after 9-11, she will appreciate this. You know what I did? Yeah. I spent those two weeks rollerblading around Manhattan. Oh, I wow. can't talk about it. I just learned that. I just learned. We've been partners since 2013. I just learned that she was a big rollerblader before we met. I was like, That's this feels amazing. like a secret I should have known. But it was like, there was nobody on all. Everything was, yeah, everything everything was completely was quiet. open. So I yeah. just like rollerbladed loops my 21 year old self around manhattan oh wow anyway, that's um, wild i would never have thought of that, that. <laughs> I, I just want to say one more thing i think it's also want to reflect what you're saying there it's like what is living a good life and then how do we build that up all of us to what is being a good community member and yes. and what is building a good world yes. and i think that's the piece that we're really wrestling with as yes. I mean every every month Amy and I have like an hour where we talk about like what does success mean to us and who needs yeah. to acknowledge us because we're human beings and yes. you know and like we have ambition and envy and yes. all of the human things and so but knowing that life is short and trying to tap into the kind of perspective that you bring and that this time period can inspire for us yeah I think is that is the I think that's what this series is, actually, like well, trying to give us a little of that. I mean, I, I think that's what it is. You know, one of the things I, I think about often is I'm like, I want to live a life where like I live very deeply. So mm. maybe I don't grieve a, a ton of people, but the people I grieve, like it's real. 
And the people who, when I leave and people grieve me, like I want it to be a real grief. I mean, it's fine. You know what people do on the internet? Like, oh, I'm so, well, they're they're dead or whatever, (laughs) you know, RIP. (laughs) Like you see those waves, right? And I'm like, Mm -hmm. I don't know what you actually felt. Yeah, broken heart, so sad, right? (laughs) Um, And I'm like, I really tried to pull back from doing those things. Like when I'm like, oh, when Bell Hooks died, like I really was weeping and I don't need to go post that on the internet. I just need to weep and light my candle and reflect on how she changed my life and really commit myself to making sure her legacy is not forgotten because she was scared about that. And I can honor that, you know, like Mm -hmm. there's real work I can do in relationship to the real impact she had on me. And it's made my circle of my actual lived daily life so much smaller because Mm -hmm. I'm, my goal now is for depth, right? Like I'm like, I really want the critical connections, but it's also made my life so much more full. Like I am able to be my whole self. I'm able to feel real feelings, <laughs> good and hard and beautiful. And um, I'm really giving life a full run here. You know, like I, I'm like, I want to taste it all. And I feel like my mentor, Grace Lee Boggs, lived to be 100 years old. She was Chinese-American activist in Detroit. And in the last couple of years, she was in hospice. You know, we were like, she's she's on her way. <laughs> and she was just like, there's nothing on my mind. You know, I've done my thinking. Hmm. I'm at ease. I'm at peace. I'm ready to go. Let me go into that good night. I'm ready, you know? And the grief I feel for her is so different because I know that she got to taste it all and do it all and write it all and think it all. And like, she really felt a completion. Hmm. So that's also something I'm really focused on in my life now, both in my individual and collective experiences is like, where is the satisfaction? Where is the completion? I love that way of orienting. That's like, I want the grief to be complete and full and I'm, I'm trying to live a very full and complete life, you know? I have a question, and this is our final, our big last question, which is just that I think I'm so in awe of you and that point of view, and I think it's um, something that we really aim for as well. And I just wonder, you know, for our listeners, any guidance on, on how to not on what it means to live a deep life, because we've heard a little yeah. bit about what that means for you, but just like, or what it means to imagine, because I think that means different things for all of us to like unlock that. Yeah. But any guidance towards how to do it? Like how how do you access the deeper parts of you if you haven't before? Or how do you access your grief? How do you access your imagination for what comes next? Mm. Yeah. I'm like, this is my life's work. So I feel like um, a few things that I found that are like, mm, this is definitely going to work. One is is actually having an, an explicit embodiment practice because the body is where your life is happening, whether you like that or not. And the more you can actually feel, the more you can feel, right? Mm-hmm. The more you're actually able to feel uh, whether you like or don't like the experience you're in or the job you're in. And like, you can start to feel the other possibilities of what your life could be. And there's a group called the Embodiment Institute that my friend Prentice Hemphill started, and they actually have a self-guided embodiment course to help you get started along that path. And then you can find embodiment and somatic practitioners who can help if there's like healing and other needs that come up. But I think that's the first one is like, get into your body, Mm. like find your way into it, do the work clear the trauma, find your way to live in your actual body in this lifetime. Um, And once you're in your body, 
like you feel a lot more, like I feel so much in a given day. I'm like, I feel such a wide range of emotions. And so I have rituals inside of that. Like when I do hear about someone dying or if I, if someone's like, can you pray for this? Or can you, I just need some energy sent here. Like I, I light a candle. I have an incredible ancestor altar. And I say, can you watch over this? Can you welcome this person? You know, in whatever mm-hmm. way y'all do. I'm, I'm never far from a bowl of sage and I'm, I always am like burning it. You know, when a feeling comes up, that's like, this is a big one or I'm taking a big risk or something. Like I really honor and have like these little micro rituals built into my day to like be like, oh, okay, you know? And then I think the thing that I've been in lately, which I'm doing this project with Sonia Renee Taylor on radical permission. And a lot of that emerged from giving yourself permission to live a good life. Hmm. Um if we come from generations that have struggled and suffered and we've been told that like, you know, the revolution's only kind of come from struggling and suffering, right? And that's just a part of life. It can feel confusing when you start to be like, I feel peace and I feel joy and I feel centered in my life. And I still feel accountable to my community and I'm, I'm showing up for my community now as an artist and as a writer, but I'm also like protective of this peace and this joy that I feel. And I have permission to feel it. You know, I do a practice where I send it back. So I'm like, I'm going to send this back to my grandmother. I'm going to send this back to Harriet Tubman. I'm going to send this back to Alice Coltrane and different people in my lineage. I'm like, because of them, you know, they sent the little tricks and little clues into my mind at various points in my life. And I'm like, what, Alice Coltrane? I need to go to on a journey of Sachinanda. You know, like stuff that I'm like, okay, like, that's important. So let me send this in case you suffered and you didn't have this. And particularly to my ancestors who lived through periods of slavery, um, whose names I don't know, but I'm like, you can't imagine, I can't imagine the, the struggle that your life was and you can't imagine the joy that mine is currently. And I want to send this to you, you know? Mm. So I don't know that that works, but I kind of imagine that time is a mycelial network too. And we can send stuff along the way but giving myself that permission. And I, I try to give as many people that permission. It's like, we actually are among the freest people to ever live right now. And these dying systems don't want us to know that, right? But we can actually jailbreak ourselves out of those systems into relationships of care with each other. And we can experience freedom right here and right now. Um, so that's that's how. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, with that. Just buy some uh, sage, it'll be fine. So my strategy <laughs> of being horizontal whenever I have a big feeling, I'm, that's the most Taurus thing about me. I'm just like, I just, you know what? I'm just going to go lay down. But that also might be your way. As long as you know what your way is, right? Mm, and mm. also I will say, I don't buy the sage. People gift me sage often. <laughs> that's one thing you can also figure out. Like, each of our lineages has different things that we burn. Each of our different our lineages has different ways of honoring water and ways of being with the dirt. So even if you don't have it passed down directly to you from your ancestors, you can do some scholarship and some study and be like, well, what mm-hmm. do my folks use? Or you can ask permission or, you know, receive the gifts. Like at this point in my life, like people are always sending me sacred items. <laughs> and so I'm like, I use them. I'm like, people send me Palo Santo by the block. I'm like, okay, I'm burning Palo Santo this month. And, um, you know, just accepting, accepting that all of us, if we way back in our lineage, we're indigenous to some piece of land. And so everything to do with the land and the water can be used for ritual, you know, um, in a good way. So we have three wrap up questions. And I think right. you really did sort of 
talk a little bit about your rituals. So, yes. but um, what are you grieving today, Adrian? Uh, um, my my sort of top level grief is always planetary. You know, it's never far from my heart that there are species that are going extinct, that there are wildfires burning that are not the natural order that there are floods and droughts, that there are hurricanes that are stronger than they need to be, that there are people who are thirsty and hungry, and that we live on this abundant planet. And because of how we're treating her, she can't give us the sustenance that that she means to, and that she has to deal with us hurting her a lot. So I have a lot of grief over the relationship I feel like we're supposed to have to Earth and what's actually happening. I have a lot of grief for my all the children in my life not getting to know the earth in the way that I have. So that's always, always, always present with me. Um, and then I have some deaths, some people in my life who have passed away recently. Um, and I have like candles lit and yeah, a lot going for that. And then I have several mothers in my life who are having to um, really fight in the co-parenting work, they're having to really fight so hard to just provide the love that their babies need. And so I'm kind of grieving the like the vision they had of what parenting was going to look like and, and what they're having to do instead, like just how hard it is. They all have the best kids in the world, so it's all good and it will be okay, but it's just like so much harder than it needs to be mm. because patriarchy is falling at the same time. And, um, and then, yeah, I went through a breakup six months ago and there's still grief there. You know, we were engaged and it was a, it was a big deal of a relationship for me. And so there's grief. It's changing all the time. And then the last thing I'll say is uh, my friend Alana Devich, Cyril, died on the 27th, three, four years ago now. She taught all of us a lot about pleasure. Mm. And so she's with me today. I love a death anniversary, actually. It's yeah. one of my important, most important markers of time. So yeah. we'll yeah. hold her right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Um, I have one last question, Amy. What do you hope for the conversation about grief in the future? I think mostly I just hope for more conversation about grief in the future. I'm starting to have the assumption that like we're all concurrently grieving different things all the time. Mm-hmm. And so normalizing it and then widening our scope of what requires grief time. Thank you so much, Adrian. Thank you. What a joy. Yeah. It was really lovely to talk with y'all about this. It This was fantastic. I think I literally am going to have to lay flat on my back for like after an hour. This. I just wanted this. to lay you out. That's That was my, I was like, I can get you on the floor. I can, I can do it. <laughs> Wow. 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 One more time with feeling. Adrian Marie Brown. Dun, 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 dun. I don't know. We got to do a remix. Oh, there's the, the remix. Uh, she is. What a light. What a joy to talk about challenging things with somebody so thoughtful, so kind, so freaking smart. Um. I wish everybody was sending me sage and Palo Santo, mm-hmm. but I do happen to have some. So I'll be doing a little bit of saging <laughs> after this. A little lighting <laughs> and meditating. I'm just going to float away. 
the way she created context for us, the way I, I, I'm like, when are we going to the Grand Canyon? Oh, I got to think about myself layered, geologically layered in history and feel made small in the best possible way by nature. Mm. When I think about Adrian, when I think about this conversation, the word for me that comes to mind is abundance. And just Mm. remembering that the world is abundant, the planet is abundant, people and like the love that we have for each other and our own internal resources and our creativity and our compassion, they are all abundant. And that Mm. is what I will take forward with me in thinking about grief and love, because as we know, they are the same thing. Mm -hmm. Abundance. Friends, thank you for being with us in these conversations and up and down the roller coaster of feelings and thoughts and questions. We are so grateful and happy to have been able to explore grief and really explore love with all of you and especially with all of our guests. This has been just beyond a joy. We laughed, we cried. We got back on the mic after three years, and we um, are really hoping it's not going to be that long again. Um, No, it won't be. We're going to see you in a few months. Oh, my God. We have something to talk about. There she goes. (laughs) Everybody, go to griefcollected.com. We are always here for you. You can always find us at Mashup American. We're here. We're doing it. Um, We love you. Thank you. Goodbye. Adios. Grief Collected is a production of the Mashup Americans, executive produced by Amy S. Choi and Rebecca Lehrer. Senior editor and producer is Sarah Pellegrini. Development producer is Dupe Oyabolu. Production manager, Shelby Sandlin. Original music composed by the Brothers Tang. Sound design support by Pedro Rafael Rosado. Website design by Voxy. Grief Collected is supported in part by a grant from the Pop Culture Collaborative. Please make sure to follow and share this show with your friends. Ciao!